For many tabletop wargamers, the idea of linking your battles together into one narrative, one story where each encounter influences the next, is the holy grail. It's the ultimate tabletop experience. But designing and organizing that kind of game, a, a truly memorable campaign, can be as difficult as the quest for the actual holy grail. Because as much as we all want to be part of a great narrative campaign, they're, they're actually very hard to execute. Not long ago on Little Wars TV, we aired our five-part campaign event for the Pyrrhic War. That series quickly rocketed upward as the most popular war game we have ever released on YouTube. Hundreds of you left comments on each chapter of that story asking for more campaigns like it. The truth is that the Pyrrhic War wasn't our club's first rodeo. We've run at least a dozen large wargaming campaigns or more in our club over the last two decades, spanning all eras of history. Some of those campaigns were quite successful, but most were not. They either fizzled out over time or flamed out very quickly as spectacular failures. And that brings us to the topic of today's podcast. What makes a good wargaming campaign? We'll talk about best practices and common pitfalls. We'll tell you about our campaigns, the ones that worked and the ones that didn't. And we'll talk to other gamers around the world to hear their lessons and advice. This is a big topic that could go in a lot of directions, and we're going to try and stay focused, looking at real case studies of games. Ultimately, we think that you're going to find this series extremely informative, and hopefully it provides you with a lot of ideas and inspiration for your own wargaming campaigns, whether they be solo, multiplayer, or cooperative. There are so many options and ways for you to link your tabletop games together, and it's that kind of creative freedom that makes this hobby so exciting and engrossing. Okay, are you ready to get to work? Pour yourself a scotch or a bourbon, Pick up the paintbrush, and let's get started. This is Little Wars FM, our companion podcast to our YouTube channel, Little Wars TV. The series you're about to hear is sponsored by our Patreon community. For a complete archive of podcasts and over 200 exclusive posts and videos, check us out at patreon.com slash TV. Welcome back to another episode of Little Wars FM. I am Greg. I am joined this evening uh, this evening by Miles and Tony. We're going to talk about campaigns. We're going to talk about some specific type of campaigns. But what is a campaign? In a nutshell, it's a series of linked events. There's a referee who kind of defines the, the limits and parameters of the thing, um, sets the stage for the players. Campaigns come in two basic varieties. There's a map-based campaign or what the role players would refer to as a sandbox campaign, which you have a space in which you're going to operate and a linear or railroad campaign, which you have not so much a space, but a series of linked events. And you're going to do things that are going to affect the outcome as play progresses. But that's the, the basic concept of what we're talking about. And I don't know what it is about campaigns, but every time that we run one in our club, and we have run quite a few of them over the years, everybody wants to participate, right? Like everybody raises their hand and like, I want to be involved in this campaign because there is just something special about linking your scenarios together. I mean, Miles, what, like, what is it? I mean, what, what is it that, that draws tabletop gamers, historical, fantasy, sci-fi 
What is the appeal of playing in this manner? Well, there's a couple of ways. One, it's role playing for a historical game uh, where your, your, your character develops. And you may not have a character in the terms of a Dungeons and Dragons type character that has levels, but your army, your forces change. The situation changes and, and, and the, the, you gain casualties, you, 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 you gain reinforcements. And so your decisions have a lot more ramifications than two hours on a tabletop. And I think also the, the intellectual challenge is greater because, you know, you're not just looking at, at, at a six by four table. You've got a big map and, and, and you've got a whole host of range of options that are presented to you that happen in between when you have tabletop encounters. So I think it's just a, 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 a richer environment uh, and, and one where you're, you're almost participating in a movie as opposed to watching a, a, a very structured uh, kind of a, a, a show where, uh, you know, you kind of know the outcome. One player is going to lose, one player is going to win. But in a campaign, no one really knows the outcome. So I think it's just intellectually a lot more stimulating. Well, our club certainly has enjoyed many campaigns and our guys are into it. But we, we know for two reasons that we are not alone in our love for campaigns. One is, of course, not long ago, we published the Pyrrhic War campaign on YouTube. And it quickly became the most popular series of videos that we have done as a club on YouTube. So we know mm -hmm. from that and from the comments that there's a big appetite for, for historical campaigns. But Miles, we also have access to some data thanks to the Great Wargaming Survey. I know that you have been working with some of the team at WSS on interpreting that data over the years. Yeah. Uh, what does it tell us about the appetite for campaigns among miniature gamers? Well, if, one of the questions we ask in the survey, and, and this is the 2022 survey, uh, so it's hot off the press, is what type of game do you like? And, and, and the games are scenario-driven games, skirmish style, cooperative, monster survival. There's a whole range of answers. And one of those answers is campaign-driven. And in every year we've asked this question, the number one uh, most popular type of game all game war gamers choose is campaign games by far. Uh, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a weighted choice answer. You get your top three and we, I do a weighted index and one in three gamers campaigns is their number one type of game. Uh, I think if we asked a question, how many campaigns do you play in? I think you, we, we'd get an, un, an answer under 10% of players actually playing a campaign. So I think it's a it's an aspirational goal, but it's one that's consistently the number one type of a, a choice of games that people want to play. I think one of the reasons it's aspirational, of course, is because it's, it's a lot harder to pull off than it looks. Um, a, a lot of even our campaigns in our club have kind of ended poorly. <laughs> and I'm hoping that over the course of this podcast, we'll be able to give people some advice, mm -hmm. some best practices that have worked for us about how they can how they can do it do this and do it well. Uh, later on at the end of this first episode, we're going to have two interviews, one with Henry Hyde and one with Travis of Tabletop CP. But I want to bring in a segment with Henry before we get rolling. I think it's the perfect opener to our discussion because in a, a recent book that he wrote about wargaming campaigns, he has a whole list of questions that someone organizing a campaign should ask themselves. And I think that that list of questions might be a good place for us to also begin our discussion. Hello, everyone. My name's Henry Hyde. 
I'm the author of Wargaming Campaigns, which was just published in June of this year. There's a section that's all about sizing it all up. So really simple questions like how many people are going to be involved in the campaign? How long is it going to run? Uh, is it intended to be purely historical or will it allow players more freedom than that? Uh, how large will it be uh, in geographical terms? How many sides are there? How comprehensive do you want the campaign to be? Stuff like logistics, weather. You know, these are things that often, to be frank, get left out of campaigns because people go, oh, God, you know, I don't have to worry about whether it's raining on the day that my, you know, I've got my musket armed infantry in, in full battle array. That will really put a dampener on things, won't it? But, yeah, in a campaign context, you really ought to be thinking about stuff like the weather. You really ought to be thinking about, you know, have I got enough supplies to fight all day or are we only going to have to fire off a few rounds and hope for the best and maybe retreat because we haven't got sufficient ammunition that kind of stuff um how intensely must the players participate now this is something that i've learned the hard way uh, over the years uh, because um sometimes players like the, oh yeah i'd love to fight in the campaign but they don't actually really want to put in much work and more often than not, when you're running a campaign, you have to, you know, dealing with different people's lifestyles, the different personalities, how much time they can allocate to this thing. You're dealing with a mixture of people, some of whom may be mad keen and send you 10,000 word reports for every move. And other people who kind of just do the bare minimum and sometimes, frankly, don't turn up at all. So that's a really kind of important thing when you're planning a campaign. Those are some very good considerations, and we're going to come back later in this episode to talk with Henry Hyde for about 20 minutes, going into much greater uh, detail on those. But Tony, uh, at the end of Henry's clip, he talks about how important it is to know your players and know their limits. And that campaign commitment level, I think, can be improved in two ways. Number one, you could make your campaign rules easier to manage, shorter rules. Or two, you could make the campaign shorter, the actual play. And both of these keys helped to make a, a campaign we ran in our club, Steve's uh, Guadalcanal Naval Campaign, I think very successful. So why don't we open by talking about that as a case study? So could you sketch out for people listening uh, what that campaign was all about? Because I think we should definitely focus on it. It was a clean, uh, simple ladder campaign and probably a good place to give an overview of what a linear campaign looks like. We played this campaign over 10 years ago, and that was well before Miles joined the club. So maybe Miles will also find this kind of interesting. I, I always like learning about the Dark Ages, uh, Greg. <laughs> yes, the good uh, old days. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. The Solomon Islands campaign um, is a product from Old Dominion Gameworks for their GQ3 World War II naval rules, which... The club's favorite set of uh, World War II naval rules, probably our favorite naval rule set. But the campaign is the Japanese actions to reinforce uh, Guadalcanal and the American naval response to it. I was the Japanese commander. And as the Japanese commander, I'm presented with 
a list of available vessels, some choices for the first turn and each subsequent turn of missions that I need to accomplish or certain things that the Japanese players must accomplish to win. And you accomplish those by completing various missions. You have to supply the troops on Guadalcanal. You have to shell the Americans at Henderson Field. You have to fend off American Navy so that your ships can supply the island. And you have to make choices. And so you make these choices and you run the missions. And what I discovered after the first wildly successful surface action against the Americans was that it actually was a setback in terms of campaign because while we were merrily shelling the American cruisers and sinking ships left and right, we were in the process not shelling Henderson Field and not supporting our landing craft. And so while it seemed like we were having fun on the table, uh, in campaign terms, it, it, it turned out to be a setback because we failed in accomplishing our objectives. The other thing that the campaign did was that ships obviously take damage, and if they take sufficient damage, they're out of the action. And in the case of the Japanese, they're pretty much out of the action for the campaign due to the limited resources the Japanese have for repair and, and damage control at sea. So there's a lot of decisions that went into how, how long do we stay and fight? Do we fight? And it made for a lot of interesting scenarios on the tabletop. And it brings up a good point about knowing your players, because in one of the engagements, I was adamant as the Japanese commander that as soon as we identify the elements of the American fleet, we're going to do one of two things. If we completely dominate them numerically and quality wise, we'll attack, we'll fight. If it's anything approaching even numbers, we're going to turn around and flee immediately. And the other Japanese player with me that evening heard, I, I believe, heard the instructions, but decided to operate on his own initiative, which managed to get us into a prolonged engagement and caused us to suffer some damages that we were not prepared to suffer and completely fail in completing our mission. And it was at a point where from there on in, everything we did was to try and regain the initiative and, and to no avail. The damage had already been done, um, but the campaign was straightforward. The rules for the campaign were fairly simple. Here are your mission choices. Here's what's left of your fleet. Assign the elements to these tasks. Um, I don't know the exact mechanics, but there was some procedure by which we Americans might bump to each other. And so as a player, you're basically concentrating on planning your missions, executing your missions. There's very little, no thought of game mechanics, except when the miniatures actually hit the table. So all in all, it was very simple to play the role of one of the commanders in the campaign. And I think that was one of the reasons that made it a success. I, I also think it was a success because, frankly, it was short. We were able to get to completion on it because there was a there was a very defined time limit for the number of missions that, you know, the two sides could run. And then we were calling it right. 
And, and so, I mean, honestly for us, how long do you think that took Tony? I mean, like in real time, I think we may have played that campaign for like four or five months, probably less than half a year. Is that about right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I don't think that went more than about three or four months. And I think that the idea of a finite number of turns is definitely a must in a successful campaign. Um, you know, we're not talking about a D&D campaign where it may go on forever. Um, this is something where, because you don't have that much vested interest in character development, there needs to be a clear end in sight for the players to look at and say, this is, this is our goal. This isn't a campaign as we think of a campaign in fantasy role-playing. This is rather a story arc in that we're looking at a specific segment of historical events. We're fighting the Solomon's campaign. We're fighting the 1815 campaign in Flanders. Something like that, I think, lends itself well to being a manageable miniature wargaming campaign. Yeah, I do want to remind everybody listening um, that this was not a map-based campaign. I mean, yes, we were fighting in the Solomons at Guadalcanal and players could, you know, refer to historical maps to see that battle area, but neither side was maneuvering on a map. It was simply a pre-programmed list of mission options and you had to choose what forces to allocate to those missions. The map was irrelevant. There was no strategic movement. Uh, now, Miles, you, you were not a member of the club at the time, so you didn't get the chance to participate in this campaign, but listening to Tony describe the flow and, and how it went. Uh, what kinds of takeaways as a third party sort of objective observer of this, do you think that people could take for what works well in a campaign? I mean, what sounded appealing about that to you as someone who didn't get the chance to play in it? Uh, I, I think having clear objectives. So each player had a set of competing objectives whether it was bomb the field, you know, uh, uh, supply the troops or, or try to sink American ships and, and, and having those very clearly laid out so people understand them. Uh, I think the uh, having a very clear set of tabletop resolution rules that everybody likes. Uh, you, you picked a set of rules that people understood and they, they enjoyed playing, which means when it comes time to resolve something on the tabletop, no one's kind of dreading it because uh, they don't like the rules or, or it's not their favorite. Uh, and I think it seemed to be one where the burden on the GM to manage it was actually, because there wasn't a map, seemed to be pretty pretty limited and, and easy to do. And he can, he could have, Steve could have focused as much on the storytelling of the campaign as the mechanics of, of getting everything to go. So the, those are my kind of three reactions. It just seems very, very feasible and uh, you know, a low kind of administrative burden for everyone involved. Well, I'm, I'm glad actually that you mentioned Steve as the GM. That's that's something that Henry Hyde talks about later when we do our interview with him, that so often when we think about campaigns, we think about, oh, well, we need to keep it manageable for the players. And that is true. Mm -hmm. But you also need to keep it manageable for whomever is actually running the campaign. And Miles, you're absolutely right about this example. Uh, I think the burden for Steve was quite light. Everybody kind of sent in their mission choices to him via email. And the only thing that Steve really had to worry about was rolling for spotting and weather. Mm -hmm. There was a chance, as Tony alluded to, that the two naval forces would miss each other on a given turn. 
So it was entirely possible in that campaign that the Japanese selected to do a, a supply mission down the slot, mm -hmm. and the Americans just never saw them coming. And Steve was the one who was rolling to resolve whether or not we had that spotting. And um, Oh, if only we had been so lucky. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. As, as, as you may have guessed, in the end, it was ultimately an American victory in that campaign. But I, I think it was one of the most successful campaigns that we have run in the club. And we've probably run at least a dozen of them because it was so short. It was so effective. And we got to the finish line. Um, Miles, while we're talking about linear campaigns, uh, do you have any examples of a linear campaign that you were involved in, either as a player or as a, a, an organizer referee? Uh, I've played in a few of the pint size campaigns from the Lardies for, uh, for sharps practice and, and chain of command. Uh, and there, you know, they, they tend to be six to eight games and they branch off and, and the outcome of game one determines the, you know, the setup for the next game. Uh, and, and they're, they're, very, they're administratively really easy. You know, it, it, there's not a lot of surprises, but they're a lot of fun and it's tense so that, you know, you know your actions on game one impact the next game. So maybe you're not going to charge that machine gun with, uh, with your rifle squad across open ground. Maybe you'll just kind of let them kind of slink away and, and hopefully you'll get them next game. And, and I really like those uh, because they're, it was easy to set up. Everyone had the miniatures. Uh, and, and it was one of these things where, uh, you know, it, it, it maybe took an hour of administrative time for every two to three hours of table time. Um, and you know, the, the lardies, you, you can see them on the website. I think they do an extremely good job with these and the, their, their pint size campaigns will work for just about any type of similar rule set skirmish rule set. So you don't have to use one of their rules if, uh, you prefer something else. I've never played in one of the pint size campaigns. I've seen a whole bunch of them online. I mean, they sell them very cheaply. Um, and that will be actually the topic of our second interview at the end of this episode. I know that uh, Travis, Tabletop CP, he's going to be talking in great detail about a specific pint-based campaign that he really enjoys. So we'll, we'll be getting into much greater detail on the mechanics of how those campaigns work. A good example of a ladder-style campaign. Um, Tony, how about you? Uh, does, uh, does another ladder campaign come to mind, either that we've done in the club or that you've uh, done elsewhere? Well, um, one that I'm that I want to get on the table and also from Old Dominion um, is their North Sea campaign for World War One naval actions. Um, and it's a similar concept. It is a little more linear in that there's a lot less mission planning. It is for all intents and purposes, a series of linked scenarios starting in the beginning of the war and the first two or three days of the war. But what happens, of course, is that losses matter. And given the British naval strength comparative to the German naval strength, losses matter tremendously for each side. So you have to husband your resources. Um, you need to know when to get out of Dodge. And if you look at the naval war in the North Sea during World War I, it's almost entirely based around that notion of uh, let's not risk anything if we don't have to. I'm looking forward to getting it on the table because one, it will be easy for the players. The decision-making is pretty minimal. Um, 
other than how much of your fleet you're going to that's available to you will you commit um, so there's a lot of planning and time spent having the email turns back and forth and for the person running it the setup is fairly minimal because the scenarios are predefined and the 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 biggest variable is going to be what is actually available versus what is supposed to be available. So I'm looking forward to getting that on the table. And it is, it is a very, very linear campaign. There's no, there's no map maneuvering. It's, it's a series of set piece missions. Um, and the variable will be what percentage of your force you commit to, to these missions. Interesting to note that, um, all three of the examples we've mentioned so far, all were written and designed by someone else, which, I mean, really makes them so much easier to get on the mm -hmm. table, right? I mean, you're, you're taking a campaign that's kind of like ready out of the box. It's already been written, already been play tested. And that means there's just fewer pitfalls, you know, that are going to ensnare you uh, when you when you're able to play something like that. So I, I think linear campaigns are perfect for for beginning war gamers or veteran war gamers like us who are, who are just looking to get something out there quickly that provides like a narrative arc to it, link it, their scenarios together. And even more important as, as a GM, a linear campaign is a great time thing to, for your first campaign to run, you know, jumping and running a campaign with hidden movement and maps and all that as your first time, that's a pretty big order. So if you, if you've never run a campaign before, I, I really strongly do a linear campaign first and, and, and you know, figure out if, if, if running the campaign is really for you, because it's something you have to want to do. Well, and the other thing, Greg, that you pointed out was that there are a fair number of linear campaigns published and, and ready to go, whereas a map-based campaign by nature doesn't lend it so, itself so well to being pre-packed and and written out so there's accessibility for people like oh we should run a campaign at our club there's there are a fair number i'm not going to say a lot but there's a fair number of campaigns available um there are a couple of campaigns out now from uh, for o group there's one for france in 1940 there's uh, one for normandy and while you could run them all as individual scenarios you can also run that as, as a series of linked engagements where casualties and whatnot carry over from term to term. So there's a lot, a linear campaign, I, I think is fairly easy to generate compared to a, a more map-based campaign. Definitely easy to generate. And, and we've been you know, saying lots of nice things about the benefits of linear campaigns, but I do think it's important to note that, you know, it's not all sunshine and, and rainbows, at least from my perspective, when it comes to the linear campaign, because a lot of them, I feel they are fun, but we have played a number of them that are missing that strategic component. I, I, one of the reasons you play a campaign, in, in my opinion, is because you want more than just the tabletop battles, right? I mean, you want to go beyond tactics and start looking at some strategy. And that's the kind of thing in a campaign that you do away from the table, sort of between the turns, you know, you're you're doing something at a higher level. But in a ladder campaign, especially one that is very linear, like the one that you mentioned a moment ago, Tony, the, the North Sea campaign, where you're just kind of being forced along from scenario to scenario. Yes, you're carrying over your losses, but 
I really feel like sometimes linear campaigns miss out on on the fun of the experience of being able to make some kind of higher level decision. Um, you, you, you lose the, the deception level because on the campaigns, there's, there's a deception level. My troops here, or are they there? But I think you gain a lot in learning how to run a campaign. I, I also, you know, I, the, the, the linear campaigns have a limited appeal to me. They, they can be fun, but it's not what I really want to do. But, but, you know, I'm glad I've learned to run them so I can potentially be a better GM when I do the more sophisticated kind of uh, open-ended campaign. Yeah, I would think that the linear campaign, um, as Miles said, is definitely a good way to get your feet in the water, to try running a campaign. You can pick up, uh, you can pick up a lot of important stuff there, um, how to gauge which players, how to gauge which players are the right fit for the campaign, um, how to how to manage the time you need to run the campaign, all of that. But ultimately, the big draw for campaign play and the reason for map-based campaigns is because we want to outsmart our opponent, not just on the battlefield. Sure, I want to mow his troops down. That's fun. But ultimately, I want to drive it home that I'm the superior tactic i'm the superior strategist and the map-based campaign gives me that whole broad area in which i can maneuver attempt to deceive my opponent and demonstrate my genius um which which i have almost done in one or two map-based campaigns i'm nearing the point where i will demonstrate my genius someday Someday, Tony, we We're all still waiting. look forward to that day. <laughs> right. <laughs> Even though I do think that linear campaigns have some limitations on the strategic side, yeah. clearly. One of the reasons I'm so fond of going all the way back to that Guadalcanal campaign, Tony, that we talked about at the start, one of the very first campaigns we ever ran in the club, I still think is one of the best, is because the way that that campaign was written, you still, even though there was no map, you still did have the ability on both sides to make some decisions. It wasn't just we're linking together five scenarios and you're just sort of pushing along between each one, taking some losses or having a random event along the way. There was a, a menu of missions. You, you could go in different directions. It wasn't truly a ladder. Uh, it did allow players to make some different choices and to choose what they were going to allocate to each of those different choices. So to me, that seemed like kind of like a nice medium blend of getting the benefits of the latter campaign while still giving you a taste, like some opportunity to do something beyond just trickling along to the next one. I think one of the things in that campaign, and I don't know if the Americans worked under the same restriction. I suspect they did not. The Japanese had a limited amount of fuel oil available from mission to mission. And there was some variable um, Steve would determine what the amount of, of fuel was for the Japanese. But in order to get one of the Japanese ships is the Yamato, the mighty Yamato, you know, salvaged from star blazers and put into service in the forties by the Japanese Navy. But 
the you have that giant powerful battleship but it's a gas guzzler and to get it into play requires that you expend a, a fair amount of of fuel to do so and so there was that there was that debate is this thing really going to impact the battle significantly enough that I'm going to leave other stuff behind in order to gas this thing up. And, and of course, then what happens is the Yamato winds up performing as it did historically. It's a threat in the background that doesn't actually get you. We have it. And we're not going to use it. And, you know, you find yourself pressed. And I think that was a good element to add some decision-making and to make the Japanese player consider all the options. And I'm sure there was some mechanic that worked in a similar fashion for the Americans. Their supply lines are so extended at that stage of the war. But that was something that even in that sort of linear campaign added another level of, of planning. And that's what we like in a campaign is that management aspect. Yeah, before we get to our um, our two interviews with Henry and Travis, you know, one other huge benefit I think we should mention to linear campaigns is that for people listening who want to write or design their own campaign or like kind of put their own spin onto something, which is one of the great joys of playing in a campaign is getting a chance to have mm -hmm. a, a hand in designing it. Linear campaigns are such a good place to start, right? I mean, I'm sure in our next podcast, we'll, we'll talk about designing a map-based campaign, but it is much, much harder. And there are way more pitfalls to watch out for. In a linear campaign, it is very easy to structure. And you saw a good example of that uh, a couple of years ago on Little Wars TV, if, if people remember the Tombstone episode. That was basically a linear campaign. You know, in the club, in that video, you can see us play a series of linked scenarios from the Tombstone chapter mm -hmm. of history. And, uh, you know, we... We were tracking casualties, you know, does Wyatt Earp survive the first scenario? You had a set of characters that you were following. It had a lot of RPG elements, but that was a that was a, a campaign that we designed in the club. And honestly, wasn't really that tough to design because we were just kind of linking together uh, a series of tabletop engagements. Well, you know, we've talked about some campaigns we've been in, some campaigns we did, some campaigns some other people wrote. So what is it that makes a good campaign? If you were to define the elements that make a good campaign, Miles, in your opinion, what makes a, what makes a good campaign? Uh, based on the campaigns I've run, I'm probably better suited to tell you what makes a bad campaign. But, <laughs> but I think what makes a go good on, campaign... Go on, go <laughs> on. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. I'll, I'll do that, that, that self-flagellation. But I think what makes a good campaign is that it builds its own momentum that, that it's one where, you know, the GM doesn't have to flag the players to, to, to get around to do it, that people all kind of self self kind of regulate and, and, and it builds its own momentum. I think a good campaign has a very definite start and end. Uh, it is time limited uh, both in terms of turns uh, for the game, but also in terms of real time that you're going to take people's mind share to participate in, in the campaign. And I think it has to have really simple rules. So the only thing that really surprises players is what the other side is doing, not some new rule the GM springs on them midway through the game that can be really frustrating. 
you want surprises to come from your opponent. You don't want surprises to always come from your GM. And I think as a GM, you have to kind of, you know, be, be careful not to fall victim to the, uh, I'm a megalomaniac and it's my world. I control it. You want your, your players to actually, you know, chart the course of the campaign, not, not yourself. Greg. Lots, yeah. Lots of ways we could answer that question. Um, I, Miles's answer gave me time to think of my top two. Uh, I think that a good campaign scratches two itches. Number one, it, it gives the players more than just a tactical experience on the battlefield. I, mean, I love coming to our club every Monday and playing one-off scenarios. Th those are a lot of fun. But at the end of the day, when we pack up the table at nine o'clock and everybody goes home, that was it, right? I mean, someone won, someone lost. It is, it is a fun experience, but it was just what happened on the tabletop. And in a campaign, you're getting, you're getting something in between. Uh, and that is why I said a little earlier in this discussion that sometimes linear campaigns can leave something to be desired for me because there's just less opportunity in a linear campaign often to have strategic gameplay away from the tabletop in between turns. Uh, there are ways you can bake it in, for sure. We've touched on a few of them here. Um, but that's important to me. And, and the second thing I would say, it's really important that the campaign comes to a conclusion. And that may sound like a dumb or simple thing to say, but we have played a lot of campaigns in our club that never reached a conclusion. And there are, <laughs> there are so many reasons why campaigns fizzle out. So many different reasons. I, but I, uh, no matter how good it was when it was happening, uh, if, if you don't reach a clear ending, it leaves a lot to be desired for all the players. You, you, you want to have... a uh, a, a clear end of the campaign and everybody knows that, Hey, look, it's, it's over. And this is what happened. I think it's just a much better takeaway. Um, well, I think part of, one of the pieces with the, with the pace and having that is you want, you, you don't want to have came campaigns run really long when the issues already decided halfway through. And it's a bit of a, uh, you know, for the side that's, that, that, that's on the losing side, you want to end it quickly for them. You don't want to have them have to go through three more months of just getting their butts kicked. Because that, that's not a lot of fun. Uh, but I would suspect, Greg, that the vast majority of campaigns that people start, especially the nonlinear ones, never finish. I think it's probably the minority of campaigns that get to a, what we call it, a conclusion. That's a safe bet. Um, for myself, I think four things define a good campaign. Um, a, a, a good campaign is about resource management. You don't have enough of whatever it is, the troops you're commanding, the resources to get the troops into battle so that you have to make decisions and you have to come up with clever solutions, which brings me to the other thing. A good campaign challenges the players. It shouldn't be, even if it's a linear campaign, it should present some challenges even if it's just tactical decisions, but you have, it has to make you think and it has to make you doubt. Have I made the right choice? What's my opponent going to do? There has to be that element of doubt and concern. Um, a, a good campaign needs more than one path to victory. To what Miles said, some campaigns, the victory conditions are such that halfway through it, side B has lost and side B is going to get themselves beaten their butts kicked for three four more scenarios it's no fun no fun for anybody um 
And, and the other thing that a good campaign needs to do, a good campaign needs to tell a compelling story, um, both in terms of there has to be player interest, but a good campaign inspires the players and the players will write a good story from the good campaign. I like the, um, I like the more than one path to victory note. Um, that that's, that's a great comment and it adds so much of the sort of strategic element to it that appeals to me about campaigns. Um, but miles, you've got me intrigued now. Now I have to know you, you said, you said you have more, more things to say about what not to do. So, uh, so tell us how, how bad you are at running campaigns. I'm really bad. I'm really bad. Great. Well, let's walk. I, I, a, a year or so ago, right before COVID, I, I ran a pseudo Napoleonic game that that 12 year old Miles has always wanted to run, which was Napoleon's invasion of America. Uh, and, and yeah, I had American forces and some British forces against Napoleon. And it was a silly campaign. Uh, and, and what what I did wrong was a, a couple things. Uh, one, I picked you guys to play in it, and that that was a disaster. Um, That's on you. Beyond that, um, yeah, I I picked a rule set that was very new for Napoleonic tabletop battles. I'm not going to say what it was, but it was one that we thought we liked, but we actually ended up not liking it. And and for the tabletop battle resolution, you know, after the first battle, people were going, I don't really like that, but we're kind of committed. And so... You know, I uh, other unlike Steve who picked GQ three for his his battle, I picked a rule. I picked the wrong rule set for for the fight, and and people kind of lost interest in battles. You know, you, battles should be things like, yeah, I can't wait to get to the club to have this battle. It was like, oh my god, I got to play that rule set. Uh, second thing is, is I overcomplicated this uh, scenario with Napoleon invade. I had a simple square grid map that worked fine. I had this diplomacy section where you could try to woo the different Indian tribes to join you. It didn't matter if they joined you or not, and it just wasted a lot of mind share. Uh, and, and so I, I, I created a campaign system that I never tested. Uh, it was overcomplicated. Uh, and you know, at the end of the day, you know, I think players started to lose interest uh, as we went on. We, we, we got it to a conclusion. The, the French lost. Uh, it, hurts my, it hurts my heart to say that. Um, but I think it's one of these things where, uh, I think it's just a, a, a system where I, I want, I, I, it was more, I wanted it to do a lot more things that I always wanted to do in a campaign versus making sure I was doing stuff that my players wanted to have in a campaign. Uh, and so I think I was a little selfish as a GM in my design of it. Uh, and that's my key learning is, is that as you look at the players, all players have a personality. You, you probably know them pretty well. You know, make sure you design a campaign that that fits those personalities so that they want to continue participating. In it. Well, you also, you know, you, you ignored the advice that we just gave, Miles. If you had only listened to this podcast before you designed that campaign. You, you know, I, I'm working on that time machine, Greg. And you, you, if, yeah, if you had I, had that I, I really time machine. You, you would have heard us say that if you are designing one of your first campaigns, it's much easier to design a linear campaign. You, I, I played in the, uh, I played the 1812 campaign and, and it was a map based campaign. Those are my favorite, mm -hmm. but they're also just so much tougher because of the additional complexity. Yep. Um, so in our, in our next podcast, we're going to talk a lot more about 
map-based uh, campaigns. But before we wrap this up, Tony, um, while Miles was kind of bemoaning some of his campaign mistakes, uh, do you have any pitfalls that you think people should be aware of uh, when they're looking at either designing or picking up a campaign that somebody else designed? Uh, what, what do they need to be aware of to make sure that they're going to have a positive experience? Don't overcomplicate it. The, everybody, Miles is not the only one who's had this vision from when they were 12. And you try to incorporate all this stuff. And in your head, it is so cool. But that's because it's in your head. <laughs> and getting it out and getting everybody else to think, this is so cool is very, very difficult to do. And all that stuff, distill it down to what's actually going to matter for gameplay. Don't try and incorporate everything. I, I think that's, I've seen us do it in the club. I've seen me do it in role-playing campaigns I've run in years past. The tendency to fit every good idea into one campaign, is a recipe for disaster. Focus on the focus of the campaign. Figure out what the campaign is about and focus on the things that draw the players to that part of the campaign. And the extraneous stuff is extraneous stuff. Miles had said about courting the Indian tribes to join and in the end it didn't matter. Um, and that's something you learn you have to run some bad campaigns. You have to write some bad scenarios. You have to play some crappy rule sets to get, to get to the point where you're running a good campaign with good rules and good players. If you're trying to run a campaign and your first one is a failure, welcome to the club. And if your second, third, fifth one is a failure, you're probably on par with the rest of us. Very few people I've ever met run a successful campaign right out of the box. Yeah. Don't, don't be discouraged. You're going to make mistakes. Yeah, I, I think that's, a, that's probably the most important point, Tony, is you will make mistakes. It's okay. It's how we learn. Uh, and, uh, you know, don't, don't be afraid to try something because you're going to make a mistake. You are. And that, you know, yeah, you, you won't make more than I did. So I'll be your Mississippi. <laughs> I think one way to avoid some of those hard lessons and litany of mistakes that Tony listed there is actually to pick up a campaign that somebody else has already written that has been thoroughly play tested. Like, you know, Miles, you mentioned the Lardies, the pint sized campaigns. That's a great place to start because the Lardy team has already had years of those hard knocks and those mistakes that we've listed here. Mm -hmm. And they've applied those to that. And, and there are other examples. You know, Tony mentioned two different uh, GQ3 uh, linear campaigns. Again, already been play tested, already had a lot of people kind of run through it and iron out the kinks. So I think that there are ways to sidestep some of the growing pains. Now, if you want to write your own, if you want to do what Miles did and kind of build the campaign that your 12 year old self always dreamed of then yeah you know <laughs> you you are gonna have to maybe go through some tough times and that's just part of the territory we are gonna sign off here hopefully the three of us will all be back uh for part two of this podcast 
And uh, we'll hand this over to our first guest. You heard him earlier in this podcast, and uh, he's going to tackle some of the questions that we were touching on in our discussion. You know, questions like, how can you juice up a ladder or linear campaign to maybe make it a little bit more interesting? Uh, He's got some great ideas for that and much more. So with that being said, we'll turn it over to Henry Hyde. Hello, everyone. My name's Henry Hyde. I'm the author of two books that wargamers seem to really like. Um, The first one was The Wargaming Compendium, published in 2013. And the most recent one is Wargaming Campaigns, which was just published in June of this year. On the topic of Wargaming Campaigns, if somebody is listening to this and they are not familiar with the book, because it is quite new... Give us uh, the 30-second elevator pitch for what that book is and why somebody might be interested in buying it. Wargaming Campaigns builds on what I wrote about in the compendium. It it's basically takes the notion of uh, stringing together uh, a narrative stream of tabletop games, making each battle that you play relevant to the next battle that you play, so that you're not just getting standalone fight to the last man kind of encounters all the time. It actually matters that you've managed to keep a reserve. It matters that you've managed to retreat those units off the table before they get crushed. Uh, and also bringing all those other as- aspects that usually get overlooked when we talk about tabletop wargaming such as logistics and even things like naval warfare amphibious operations air campaigns air power all these wonderful things that uh if you're just playing simple tactical tabletop wargames you miss out on and there's a huge rich tapestry of wonderful wargaming stuff to be discovered and that's what my book is about There's so much happening in a topic like this when you talk about campaigns, so many different directions you can go. And that was something that we discussed at length here in our club as to how we wanted to even organize this small podcast discussion. And the way that we decided we would tackle this is much less comprehensive than your book. Uh, We we figured we would break this down uh, into two types of campaigns that people could look at. They could look at a map-based campaign. Yeah. Land, sea, air, combination of all the above. I'm a huge fan of map-based campaigns. You know, that open sandbox. Those are generally the most complicated style of campaigns. But you could also do something much easier. You could do a linear uh, or a ladder campaign, which you talk about extensively in the book. I think the map-based stuff is self-explanatory, but how would you describe a linear or a ladder style campaign? Okay, um talking about this immediately i have to mention two fat lardies because i think they're they're the probably their campaign books are some of the most you know well known in the hobby for running ladder type campaigns and uh it's it's really simple you can almost say uh that it's a bit like in any other kind of sport or hobby where you would have kind of a a, a competition set up uh where effectively you have uh, objectives at either end of the ladder you kind of start in the middle of the ladder and you can in its most simple style you could say well you you are trying to amass a certain number of victory points that's a really simple way of approaching this isn't it you could say that right for every game you play say you've got player a and player b 
Uh, for every game they play, you get three points for a win, two points for a draw, one point for a loss, or zero points for a loss. And the first person to reach a certain number of points wins the campaign. And a ladder campaign is organized pretty much in the same way, where basically you have uh, you you play a game. You might have you might have actually planned out in a vague kind of sense a kind of map that might doesn't necessarily need to be a literal map you and you could say that right okay game number one is going to be fought on open ground in the middle of you know wherever it is then you're going to have a woods battle and then you're going to have a, a village battle and then you might have a major kind of city battle something of that kind or taking a bridge crossing a river whatever it happens to be so the you you kind of lay out a sequence of games player one might win the open field battle but then they lose the woods battle and they're pushed back again and you have another open field battle and so on and so forth and in each circumstance you can build in okay look at however many losses each side took in that initial game a simple ladder campaign it's just a series of games where the outcome of the first game outcomes uh, affects the outcomes of the subsequent games and how they're set up it can be really simple really uncomplicated and you know great fun in in the same way as if you if you're a regular kind of i don't know a tennis player or a chess player or something like that you've got league tables and the the, the you know the outcome of uh, one match determines who you get to play in the next match, uh, which is something else, of course, you could do. It could be a ladder campaign played between the same two players over a period of time, or it could be that you have different players taking over for the different games. Um, it, you know, it's up to you. Mix and match it. There you go, Greg. I think one point you brought up that I think is really important. If, if you've never run a campaign, a ladder campaign or a linear one is a great way to start. Because you can anticipate a lot of the battles. Like you said the battlefields can be laid out. You know, yeah. you can reduce some of the variability. You still have the players because they'll they'll do stuff that you don't anticipate. Yeah. And you still have the key thing of any campaign, which is ramifications. You yeah, know, my, my my actions today impact my options tomorrow. Yeah, uh, but I think as a first time GM, if you're if you're thinking about a campaign, really look at, at a linear campaign because uh, it just it makes it a lot easier to administrate. This. oh yeah absolutely you've hit on a really good point there because we've been kind of talking about the players experience mm -hmm. but uh, the, what we must never forget in campaigns is that very often and, and it's highly recommended they involve one or more umpires games masters call them what you will and that's something that i write about in the book is you know before you just plunge into a campaign you really need to think about what kind of campaigns manageable both for the players and for the, the games master, for the umpire. Because uh, one of the things that makes campaigns fail so often is people overcommitting, thinking that, oh, yeah, of course we can run a country that's 10,000 square miles with 15 different races in it and, 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 and. You know, I've been guilty of that in the past, and we'll talk a bit about that, I'm sure. Yeah. I, I, I still think we have a carrier strike from a 1942 Pacific campaign that has been in the air for three years. Seriously? Yes, it has. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that can happen. So, yes, you're absolutely right there, Buzz, that basically uh, a ladder campaign is a much lower kind of ask of yeah. both players and umpires. It's much easier 
to do something that's relatively formulaic. Uh, so long as you know, it, it helps if you've got someone with exp experience in the uh, the planning stage saying, "Oh yes, actually, I think a good sequence of games would be uh, X followed by Y followed by Z." That's that's that really can make a big difference. Uh, but at the same time, of course, it's entirely possible to just randomly generate the games as you go along. You know, and one of the things that uh, some people have done, um, get a pack of playing cards. And according to, you know, what you the card you draw, that represents a particular kind of game. Uh, and it could be anything. And this is the other thing. Don't all have to be big battle games. You know, it could be, oh, if you if you pull a, a two of clubs, that's just a little skirmish game. You know, there's something going on in the woods over to one of the flanks there. If you pull, you know, the king of diamonds. OK, this is the big set down, the big encounter. It's so easy. It doesn't take much thought just to come up with a, a variety of different types of games and according to what card you draw from a deck or roll a dice against a table of potential games you know it's really easy to kind of randomize this stuff are there any ways henry that you can think of or that came up in the book that uh players could use to sort of juice up a ladder or linear campaign any anything they could add into it to maybe make it not as simple, to make it a little more strategically interesting, still following the linear format, but maybe getting a nod towards some strategic gameplay that happens outside the tabletop. Well, yes, sure. I mean, random events. I mean, that's immediately what pops into my head. And I, I've, I've written a lot about random events in the book. Um, and again, it's simply what I provide in the book is... Uh, kind of two ways of doing it there's a, a table huge table of you know roll some dice and this happens or or draw a card draw create a set of cards of random events and this happens and it could be something like you know well okay in between the last battle and this battle uh side a um ha the the weather's been really hot and that this side hasn't got enough water, so they're feeling dehydrated, so they're not going to be fighting at their best in the next game. Or that side gets a new supply of boots, right? And so they're feeling much more comfortable. Or this side runs low on ammunition. Or that side, you know, the cavalry regiments go down with dysentery. You know, there's any number of things that can just add in kind of a bit of a fun factor, quite apart from anything else that makes it just unpredictable for both sides. Those are really easy ways of doing it. And, I, you know, this is, I'm not claiming to be original here. Uh, you know, I, I, we've all confessed that we're veteran war gamers here. I remember people like Don Featherstone coming up with this kind of stuff back in the 1960s and 70s, or Tony Bath, you know. Mm -hmm. I, hats off to those guys. It's very difficult to kind of reinvent the wheel. So in my book, I make it clear that, you know, these people had some really good ideas about this kind of thing. So how about trying this? And it's it's just adds a bit of fun and interest with very little brain work, uh, just rolling a dice against the table or drawing a card. And that can spice up a ladder campaign really easily. When someone's setting out to design a campaign, how can people prevent their campaigns from fizzling out and get to the finish line? What do they need to keep in mind at the start? Limit the scope of the campaign to a specific piece of ground or a limited amount of forces or a limited amount of time. Uh, also, not involving too many people in a campaign. Uh, I think this is the other thing. As I say, the, the, some of the most successful campaigns I've done were just me and my mate Guy or 
you know, with a handful of people involved, all of whom we knew each other really well, trusted each other to have each other's best interests in mind. None of us wanted to kind of make the other people miserable. We were all of the similar mindset of, do you know what? We're here to have fun. I'm not going to have a hissy fit if I lose or the umpire tells me, look, you know, that unit has lost half its men through dysentery or whatever. You have to make sure that your players have the right kind of mindset to participate. In a campaign, you can win strategically without a shot being fired. And as a war game, for many war games, that's war does not compute. Hang on a minute. What, what do you mean I can win without actually ever having a battle? You know, when you look back through history, People like the Duke of Marlborough, for example, in the early 18th century, that's how he kind of won a lot of his wars, but was by avoiding big pitch battles, because back then they knew how expensive it was. They, they had governments and exchequers back home saying, look, don't you waste our troops. It's cost us an absolute fortune to put this army in the field. Don't you dare risk it in a big open field battle. Okay, guys, that was a 15-minute excerpt from uh, our conversation with Henry Hyde, and he gave us some great insights on ladder campaigns and what considerations that you have to weigh when designing a good experience for players. Of course, we did speak to Henry for a lot longer than 15 minutes. Uh, it was actually over an hour, and if you'd like to hear the unedited version of that complete conversation, we are going to post that as an additional bonus episode of Little Wars FM. But now, I want to pivot to a second interview with Travis of Tabletop CP. I talked to Travis about a specific campaign that he ran, one that we alluded to earlier in the show. Uh, so this is going to be more of a focused case study. And naturally, given the theme of this particular episode, Travis will be talking about a ladder-style campaign. Let's get into it. Travis, it is so good to uh, join you this evening. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks, Greg. So today we are going to be talking about a ladder-based campaign that you have played before. It's one of the lardy pint-sized campaigns, which I have looked at, but I have never actually played. So for anybody listening who isn't familiar with a lardy pint-sized campaign, uh, what are those like? How are they structured? And uh, which one are we going to talk about here today? Well, the pint-sized campaigns, they're fully fleshed out campaigns. Uh, the name the name indicates that they are designed to be the price of a pint, so like five, six bucks, and you get this campaign. Uh, they're very well uh, thought out, um, full of history. So half the campaign is generally the history of the event that you're about to play the campaign on and gives you an idea of the way it went down uh, in real life. Uh, they're usually just straight ladder campaigns. Uh, there's a few that are different, uh, but this one that we're going to talk about, 29 Let's Go, it's a strict uh, linear ladder campaign. And it's about the U.S. 175th Infantry from the 29th Division moving inland in the days after D-Day to capture an important bridge that would link Omaha and Utah beaches. Uh, most of the Lardy ones, uh, they are just standard campaigns, but like I said, this one isn't. And uh, lastly, they there's a supplement called At the Sharp End, and it's sort of a 
um, requirement for these pint size campaigns and that it it has all the post game rules and stuff that you need to do to do the bookkeeping for the campaign. It also has all the rules that you would need to design your own pint size campaign. How many missions is is there a, a, a pre-planned number of missions in the Let's Go campaign where you know, hey, we're guaranteed to get X number of scenarios done? Yeah, so I think there's five tables. Um, and you have it's the wind conditions are different. So it's there's a um, I believe you need to capture the fifth table by the sixth or seventh turn for a major victory. And if it's the eighth turn, I believe it's a minor victory. And if you don't get it in that, then the Germans are considered to have crossed the river to reorganize and set up a new defensive line. So the idea is that you're trying to capture this bridge before the Germans have enough time to pull all their forces back and uh, set up a new uh, defensive line and start all over again trying to push through them. So it's you're trying to trap them and it's a time-based campaign. So it's based on how many turns it takes you to get to that last table. And it's not a lot so that you don't have a lot of um, you don't have a lot a lot to work with as far as extra turns go. You can only lose a couple missions and still win the campaign. So it's it's tight for the Americans. When you played it, <laughs> how tight was it? Uh, how long did it take to resolve and uh, which side were you and uh, did the Americans manage to pull it off? Yes, we played it twice, uh, Andre and I. And uh, the first time Andre was the Americans, the second time I was the Americans and Andre won both. So he won as the Americans and the Germans. But I still say if we switched them around and I played them the other way both times that I would have won <laughs> just because I don't think I'm better than Andre. But I, I do think that we had a lot more experience the second time we played it. So as the attacker, um, it's a lot more forgiving as you get a fresh platoon for every game. The Germans, you have one platoon. You have to keep that platoon intact as much as you can throughout that whole campaign. So if you're a new player starting out as the Germans, you might try to make your stand on that first table where the Americans have tons of firepower. I think they have three Shermans to start with. And if you decide, well, I'm just going to stand up here and you lose half your platoon, then you only have half the platoon left for the rest of the campaign. And so it is it is a little bit more forgiving as far as uh, the Americans go for attackers, for new players. Um, but, I mean, the Germans, they have enough stuff uh, in their pocket, so to speak, to uh, make it uh, a fair fight. They, You know, this is late war German, so they have a lot of Panzerfaust. They have a Panzer Shrek. They have off-table assets they can call on. So it's, they do have limited men, but it is pretty balanced. One of my concerns, concerns, uh, comments about sort of linear ladder-based campaigns is that very often they involve a lot less off-table kind of strategic decision-making that you would get in a map-based campaign. Um, how does Let's Go handle player decisions between tabletop encounters? You already mentioned the fact that the Germans have to track their casualties. Um, are there are there other elements that are baked into this where the American and German player have to be making some kind of off-table strategic decisions aside from just the tactical resolution? Uh, not really. Uh, there's not a lot of off-table uh, choices to be made for either side. Uh, most of that comes at the end of each game or use this out the sharp end supplement and you track your your casualties you track your men's opinion of you know how they how they're feeling are you are you uh, taking too many casualties if they if you are they're gonna 
their opinion is going to drop and you're going to start losing force morale during, you know, before you even start the game. Or your CEO's opinion, if you keep losing, he'll withdraw support and offer less. Or if you're doing good, he'll offer more. Um, so it's not, there's nothing really in between games, strategically speaking, that you can decide on. It's all post-game. Um, and really the only thing that happens in between games for the Americans, uh, they have a regimental commander named Colonel Good. And it's also based on how you're doing in the campaign, how he's feeling. So he's a cautious person by nature. So if you're starting to lose, he, he might delay you. You might say, okay, we're going to just dig in here and wait for the artillery to soften them up. And that could cost you a campaign turn, which when you only have two games to, to spare, you know, losing a campaign turn like that is a big deal. So you have to keep him happy um, as the Americans by winning. Um, and if he does get unhappy, there's one chance in the campaign that the division commander, General Coda, will come in and talk to Colonel Good and he'll force him to go. But you can only do that once. So once you have used that and you've upset Colonel Good, you know, you're going to possibly lose the campaign just through him stalling. Well, that's kind of neat. I mean, it's not a it's not necessarily a strategic decision that you're making as a player, but there are events happening between the turns that are impacting you. I mean, it's cool that it's not just casualties. I mean, it's it's force morale. It's the possibility of the delay with Colonel Good. I mean, that's um that's kind of another way to do it. Do you guys ever I know you've done multiple lardy pint-sized campaigns. Do you guys ever introduce house rules or things to to do in between the turns or do you guys tend to just play them as written uh, we just play them as written um you know we'll do some house rules for on you know in the, in the actual game but we haven't ever really tried to house rule in between game events before i mean i think it's something we could do um but we've never tried it when you kind of look back on the two let's go um experiences that you had what is it about that format that you think works really well and i mean is there anything that you think that you might do differently if you ran let's go a third time or is that is that finely tuned to the point where you think it can play as is next time yeah there is some things i would change um one of the things it's there's um some off-table assets like i mentioned earlier that the germans have and technically the american player is not really supposed to know they're there um, it plays a lot better for the Germans if it can be a surprise. But if you played it before, or if the person owns the campaign and read it, then they're going to know it's going to happen. In this case, it's there's 88s off table. So when these Germans are rolling across thinking there's no, you know, no threat, you could have 88s firing from off the table onto the table into a certain zone. And if the American player doesn't know where that zone is, he'll go right into it. But if he's played it before or if he knows the campaign, he will know not to go into that area. So I would try to create some way where maybe the zones are different or there's different ways to change that up. Maybe you can move that to different boards. Um, it's all set up on the first board. There might be the second board as well, but I know on the first boards uh, specifically, those 88s are a big deal. And it's just, it's kind of a one-time thing, so it's it's only going to be a surprise at one time, and it's only going to be a surprise if the if the American player doesn't know about it. So it it, it uh, suggests having an umpire, a third impartial person that kind of runs the campaign, but that's not always easy for people to get. So 
you pretty much have to give the person both players the campaign so they know what's going on. Uh, we tried to run it uh, without Andre knowing, and I it's been so long since we did that first one. I can't remember how how those eighty eights played out, but maybe he'll have forgotten when you play it the third time. <laughs> yeah, oh, well, I'm sure Andre will probably forget about it if we do it again. But uh, it's uh, it's pretty good and it's pretty well thought out, and it's a great beginner campaign. It's kind of, I don't know if it's designed for to be a beginner campaign, but um, it's it definitely has kind of the consensus pick among Chain of Command players when someone asks, hey, what pint-sized campaign should I play first? It's almost always 29 Let's Go is the answer. I assume that, you know, I know you play a lot of Chain of Command because I, I, I watch your channel. Um, what, uh, what other pint-sized campaigns have you done and uh, how do they compare to Let's Go? Are there any like major mechanical differences? I know they're all generally set up to be you know linear style campaigns but i i assume there might be a couple of twists between them yeah yeah there's there's quite a bit of uh, variation in different campaigns so i played uh, both of the british campaigns scottish corridor operation martlet i played the british airborne d-day one comp group on luke i played the gemblo gap campaign that's early war france versus germany those are all lardy campaigns and then we have uh, i have a friend named stephen philp who is a excellent writer of these campaigns. And he's basically written three campaigns for our channel. And one of them is another early war campaign called Abbeville. And then there's one Saipan D-Day in the Pacific. And then right now we're currently playing through another one he wrote, which is early war Eastern Front in Smolensk. Those are quite a bit different. Um, even some of the lardy ones like um, Bloody Bucket and I believe Old Hickory, they have a lot of different aspects to them as far as the map goes like for example you might have three 57 mil guns and you have to put them on the you have to decide what table they're going to go on before the campaign even starts in other ones the german player can attack you know at different angles and different tables from different directions so there's i mean they're not all just a linear ladder a lot of them have some you know thought you have to put into the to the campaign before it starts, where you want to deploy certain defenses, you know, which way do you want to come in from? So there is quite a bit of variation uh, within the Lardy and with the fan-made campaigns. So it sounds like you guys have played quite a few of these pint-sized campaigns, and I'm sure others that are not pint-sized campaigns. I mean, if you step back to kind of look at all the campaigns that you played over the years, are you able to distill a couple of you know, two or three top tips, pieces of advice that gamers could use who they are trying to organize a campaign for their group? Yeah, I would say first and foremost is keep good notes of what's what's happened, uh, where you are, and try not to keep, try not to have too much time in between games if possible. Try to do it, you know, at least once a month. Um, that's what we're trying now. When we first started running these, we would run them straight through. So every week we would play the next game and it was easy to remember where we were, remember what happened. Um, as for, I mean, I'm just fortunate that I'm recording all these things. So if I ever forget, I can just go back and, and watch the video. But if you're not doing that, you know, you have to take good notes and you try to keep the time between games to a minimum because it's easy to forget where you were, uh, what happened. And if you play more frequently, you know, it keeps that interest going and you want to try to do better in the next game whereas if you're waiting for a long time you know so i forgot what my men's opinion was i didn't write it down or i wrote it down and i lost the paper so just try to stay organized and, and try to keep playing it 
as often as possible so you don't forget anything. Have you, uh, so, I mean, we, in this particular podcast, we've really been focusing on the linear style, the, the latter kind of campaign. Have you ever done, um, in your group, a total open sandbox kind of map based campaign where people can just move wherever the heck they want? No, no, we've never tried anything like that. Um, I don't know how, um, how well that would work with platoon size games, mm. maybe, maybe bigger scale, like company or higher, that'd be easier to do. Um, we don't play any company level games yet. Uh, we do want to get into that or, or even higher level games, but right now we're just at platoon level. So it's, like I said earlier, there are some of the, some of the, uh, pint size campaigns where you can just come in from a lot of different directions. We haven't played those yet, so we don't know how well they work. But um, yeah, the answer to your question is no, we haven't done that uh, yet. I am kind of curious because I, I have, you know, followed tabletop CP for a while. You, you've been really focused, like your, your channel generally focuses on a couple of key rule sets, you know, yeah. uh, Spectre Ops, uh, Sharp Practice. I know you guys do a lot of Sharp Practice, uh, Chain of Command. Uh, is that just what the group is like really into or is that just what you put on the channel and like when you're not filming you guys are are gaming other stuff i've always kind of just been curious about that no that's pretty much what we have i mean i do have a ton of 15 mil normandy era germans and americans uh, my big hang up is i didn't have a lot of terrain uh, we played flames of war for a long time that's where i accumulated all this stuff we just got kind of tired of that rule set back in third edition put it aside and moved on to 28 mil. And I've just been building nothing but 28 millimeter, you know, but from civil war to American war of independence to world war two and everything in between this whole time. So we have a ton of it. There's a lot of good rules for it, but yeah, I'm, I'm ready to move on to something different. You know, I've been saying, I, I want to try being a, a general or colonel instead of a Lieutenant all the time. Uh, you heard it here first, folks. It's it's all coming to Tabletop CP. Well, uh, Travis, thank you so much for uh, joining us to talk about the Let's Go campaign and uh, linear ladder-style campaigns. This has been a great chat. And uh, if people, for any reason, are not familiar with Tabletop CP, I know we've, we've hinted and talked a little bit about it here, but uh, go ahead and please let them know what you guys are all about and where they can find and connect with you on social media. Well, we're uh, tabletop CP, so we do, as we just said, mostly 28 mil wargaming historical. We have World War II, we do bolt action and chain of command, and we play sharp practice in many periods from ACW, AWI, uh, Napoleonics, uh, the Peninsula. Uh, we play Spectre Ops, which is a modern game we play in 28 millimeter. Uh, we even branch into some herbs slight slightly branch not as much as we used to into fantasy with um put out a video pretty much every week about a report and yeah we're just a few guys and have a lot of fun doing it and look forward to uh, seeing where we go thank you to our guests henry and travis for joining us on the show we have links in the show notes for you to find each of them online and follow their wargaming exploits this series on how to design war game campaigns will continue in part two as we look at map-based campaigns, which can be far more complicated, but also far more strategically interesting. We hope you'll, rejo you'll rejoin us then. 
While you wait for part two of the podcast, you can always find our club online at Little Wars TV. We're on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the places really. And if you enjoyed today's show, do us a favor and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And for all of us here, we'll see you next time. Western game here pretty soon as well. Let's find something to play. We're playing Dead Man's Hand, but it's like, okay, this is fun, but I want to try some other rules. So, then- we recently went through a binge where um, we we played a whole bunch of Wild West rules. We played Dead Man's Hand. We played Gunfighter's Ball, Fistful of Lead Reloaded, Rules with No Name. It was like two months where all we did was play a different Wild West game every week. Um, and the joke of it was, uh, some of them were, were better than others, but. The, the joke at the end of it after two months of like six different rules we were like well i think mark's game actually like kind of accomplishes the ruthless game which uh, our buddy mark fastoso wrote uh, in dc like he kind of accomplishes all this in two pages yes <laughs> like, yeah exactly <laughs> I mean, like why, why am i doing this like 60 page like beautiful i mean gunfighter's ball i don't know if you've seen the book it's a gorgeous book it's really like high production value, knuckle duster miniatures. But um, well, yeah, I haven't, I have not played Gunfighter's Ball, um, but I have looked through your rules, and I have a friend of mine that's, you know, keeps, I, he keeps, come on, let's play it, let's play it, and it's like, all right, and then I just get distracted. But yeah, eventually he's gonna, he'll get me to do it. So. He'll wear you down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and then we'll try <laughs> it out, and we'll, we'll we'll play a game on the channel of it because. I'd like to get my Western stuff out more after how much time I put into them. Yeah, you you guys have a really nice looking uh, Wild West setup.